following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And I don't know if any of you, is anybody here familiar with uh, studied psychology or remember studying psychology in college or whatever? And you studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anybody know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Right? Uh, even a lot of psychologists don't necessarily track that it's completely true. But the gist of what he said is that uh, we are motivated to take care of our, uh, our needs, but in a, in a rank or order. And he put on the bottom things that we, we're most concerned about was our food and clothing and shelter, the basic needs of life. And then he said, if you know, once we've kind of taken care of those things, then we can move up the scale and we can start looking for things like love and friendship and on up the scale to self-esteem and worth and significance. And finally, his, the top of his scale was uh, self-actualization. <laughs> and that's basically what that means is, that if we get all of our needs met, then we can actually pursue becoming all that we're supposed to be, reaching our full potential, right? Um, and so Jesus, this is what Jesus would say about his scale. Baloney. <laughs> Jesus would say, forget that, right? Because that's not how it works in, in my kingdom. Because that's what the world does. The world says, yeah, you got to take care of your basic needs. But Jesus says, life is not about those things. In fact, Maslow's scale is primarily about uh, and purely about the selfish pursuit of our own needs and our own gratification. Uh, Jesus says that is not what life is about. Your life is not about even your very essential needs, much less the abundance of your possessions, which is what he said in the passage before. Um, he said, instead, you are to know that God will take care of you. We talked about that last week. Faith is knowing, have a knowledge, a confidence that God will take care of you. And that kind of makes Maslow's whole scale pointless because we're not worried about those things. Those aren't, even, those aren't even a pursuit of us because we know God is going to take care of us. Now, of course, we work and we do the things to earn money, but we don't worry about those things. We're not motivated to care for those needs according to what God, uh, Jesus teaches here. He said, instead, our life is supposed to be focused in a different direction. In fact, none of the things on Maslow's scale actually really fit with what Jesus teaches here because his scale is self-centered. Jesus says life is not about you. Uh, it's about something much greater than you, and the pursuit of your life should be in other areas. Ultimately, he says, seek God's kingdom. He says the ultimate thing your life should be about is the kingdom of God. And knowing what it means to walk in it and live in it and participate in this eternal kingdom of God in which he will take care of you and in which you will find meaning and worth and significance and self-esteem and all those things at levels far beyond anything you could ever do for yourself. So it's all about God's kingdom. Um, and I want to take some time this morning to talk about what it means to seek God's kingdom. What exactly does that mean? And how can we be sure we are living in and for the kingdom if that's truly to be what our life is to be about? Um, one of the problems about this concept is that we live in the age of democracy where we have dethroned our kings or outright killed them, right? And uh, we don't have kings anymore, and we really don't have kingdoms anymore. In fact, as we'll see, even the kingdom of Thailand, by biblical standards, is really not truly a kingdom anymore. 
Uh, so, so for us to know what it means to, to walk and live in the kingdom, we need some re-education of really what a kingdom is about. So I want to do that this morning. Uh, Jesus says clearly, seek his kingdom, seek God's kingdom, and these things will be added to you. You'll be taken care of. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. By the way, somebody brought up, Lan actually brought up a good point last week from last Sunday's message that sometimes God does not take care of people's needs. Sometimes people do starve to death and are, are harmed and, and victims, and even people who are serious followers of Christ, right? And here's the glorious truth about all this. That's absolutely true. And there's no guarantees that if you live for the kingdom, God's going to take care of any of your needs. You could starve to death. But here's the great truth. When you are living for God's kingdom, it doesn't matter, right? Because if you starve to death, you still have the kingdom. If you die, guess what? You just get more of the kingdom, right? In a more present reality. So for those who are really living for the kingdom, stuff and even our own survival just doesn't matter anymore. Um, So how do we do that? Well, uh, let's back up just a little bit and talk about what a kingdom is. When we think of, at least when I think of the word kingdom, I tend to think of a realm or an empire, a place that's full of people. Right? And that's our democratic heritage coming out. Because for us, it's all about the country and it's all about the people. However, a kingdom, especially when we go back in history, way back to the time of the Old Testament, that has nothing to do with what a kingdom was. In fact, it did involve a realm and it did involve a people, but that was actually the, the, the least important part of what a kingdom was. Right? Um, it's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament was organized, Israel was organized into a kingdom, correct? Do you know how many times either Israel or Judah are called a kingdom? Anybody guess? How many times in the Old Testament are Judah, here's trivial pursuit at its best, How many times in the Old Testament are Israel or Judah identified as a kingdom? Any guesses? 20, 15, 0? Actually, it is more than 0. Three times. Three times in the whole Old Testament is Israel or Judah called a kingdom. What is it normally called? Well, it's the kingdom of David. It is the kingdom of Solomon, right? It's the kingdom of the king. Because in the way they understood the kingdom, it was all about the rule of one guy. Uh, Well, how did this come about? Well, a great example or illustration of this is is how Israel got its first king, Saul. So let me give you a brief history. Go back to 1 Samuel 8 if you want. Um, You remember the story, the Israelites uh, had been ruled by judges, not a king. And a judge was a governor. He was somewhat of a appointed regent, governing uh, and judging and ruling, but he was not a king. And uh, they looked around all the nations around them, and they got king envy. Right? All these other countries, they got a king, and he's cool. And we want a cool king like them. Right? So they go to Samuel, and they say, you're old, you're about to die, your sons are worthless, give us a king like all the other nations. And uh, Samuel is very displeased at this, because he recognizes that in so doing, they are rejecting the rule of God as their king, right? And, and God says, I know they're, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Don't worry about it. But I, I'm going to give them a king uh, so that they learn what they uh, are getting, right? And he warns them all about what will happen, that this king will not be 
the benefit and blessing to them like God was. Because this king will demand their service. He will, he will tax them. He will want their land. Right? This is, but in the end, uh, people said, we don't care. They said, we want to be like the nations around us. Uh, our, God, our king will judge us. We want a king who will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So here, get the picture. They're willing to pay taxes. Okay, and we could all tell these guys, what are you thinking, right? Don't go there, right? Because we all, we all love paying taxes, right? Wrong, right? We don't like taxes. Uh, why would they willingly pay taxes? Why would they willingly offer up their land and their, their daughters and their sons to be servants to this king? Why would they do that? Well, it's easy. They want somebody who will go out and fight their battles for them, right? They no longer want to trust God to deliver them. They want a human deliverer. Uh, they want a big dude who's mean, who knows how to fight, who will go out and beat up their enemies. That's what this is all about. Right? And ultimately, that's what a king is. So God um, sends out Samuel to anoint uh, Saul. Uh, he anoints him privately by going, uh, meeting with him first. Long story, we won't go into but, li- but later, Samuel calls Israel and he says, I found a king for you and we're going to anoint him. You remember the story? All the people come and, and Saul comes and they go through tribe and clan and family until they get down to uh, Saul's family. And Saul is picked as king to be anointed. But where is Saul? They can't find him. He's He's gone. And so they search the whole camp, and where is he? Hiding in the luggage, right? So here's a brave and mighty warrior, right? Here's the guy, the guy, the guy's scared, he's afraid of people, doesn't want to make a speech, and this is who is king. But the good news is he's big, he's a big dude. He's a head and shoulder taller than everybody else. And so when they drag him out of the luggage, they see him, they go, ooh, he's big. <laughs> we like this, okay? And uh, so they anoint him as king. But is Saul, does Saul now have a kingdom? No, right? No, he does not have a kingdom. All he has been is selected by God to be a king, but he's not yet a king, and he does not yet have a kingdom. And I love how the story goes. It says everybody, everybody goes home, and Saul goes back to his house, and he's farming, right? So he's been anointed king, but nothing changes. And in fact, there are some people, uh, it says there were some scoundrels who complained, how can this man save us? And they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts or tribute, right? But Saul ignored them. So what's happening during this phase is Saul now has been anointed, but he has got to gain support. He's got to get followers. Well, God helps him out. And some guys are clearly not following him. They say, man, this guy's worthless. I'm not following this guy. He's not my king, right? Well, uh, next chapter, uh, King Nahash of of Ammon leads his army against uh, an area of Israel. He attacks it. And he threatens them. And he, he says to them, you surrender. Uh, and Well, actually, the, the Israelites go out to him and they say, we would like to make a peace treaty. Okay, we know you're more powerful than us. We'll make a peace treaty with you. And so Nahash says, okay, fine, but here's one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of everyone of you as a disgrace to Israel. Okay, now the peace treaty is sounding a little less appealing, right? And, and this is how it worked in this day, because in this day, Ruling meant you put yourself under somebody's authority. You put yourself under them, their lordship, and you do what they say. You do what they ask to prove your allegiance to them. And in essence, Nahash is saying, I will be your king. I will be your lord and master. I will rule over you. And to demonstrate that, that I own you, 
I will gouge out your right eye of every single resident. So they say, well, okay, let's think this through. <laughs> time out, time out. Let's have a huddle, right? And they say, okay, we, this is the deal. We're going we're to give it 24 hours to find somebody to save us. If nobody comes to save us, we're all yours. So they send messengers to Saul. And uh, Saul hears about it. And he is furious. And it says the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. And he gets this holy rage that enemies would be attacking what are now his people, his responsibility. And so he cuts up uh, one of the oxen that he's plowing with. And he sends a piece of this oxen to every tribe throughout all of Israel. And he says, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't show up to fight. I'm going to cut you to pieces. And uh, God's spirit falls on him and he takes leadership and he has vision to go conquer and to to be a king. And uh, the result is that 300,000 people show up from all over Israel and Judah to to form an army under uh, Saul's leadership. And the next day Saul marches up there and he thumps on Nahash and Ammon and he destroys their army, and he rescues his people. And at the end of that, uh, notice what happens. It says, um, uh, so Saul went up, and he, he uh, said, we'll rescue you. He came, launched a surprise attack, and slaughtered them the whole morning. The remnant of their army was so badly scattered, no two of them were left. Then the people exclaimed to Samuel, now where are those men who said, why should Saul rule? Bring them here, and we will kill them. But Saul replied, no, no one will be executed today, for today the Lord has rescued. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal, and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they did what? They made Saul king. So now Saul is king. You see, he was anointed before, but it wasn't until he proved himself that he was enthroned. Right, so, so it's a two-faced thing. And this was very typical or common of how it would work for kings in that day. And they offered peace offerings to the Lord and, and Saul, and they were filled with joy. All right, so, so get the picture of what it means to be a king. This is what it means to be a king. Right? People know that they cannot protect themselves. And they looked around at all the other nations, and they saw some mean bad guys who were f- fighters, who were leaders, who knew how to organize the troops and lead them to victory. And, and Israel says, I want a guy like that. I want a guy like that to come and take care of me and fight my battles for me. And I will lay my life down for that person because I know they will give me a life that's secure where uh, I, I live uh, protected from those enemies. And the alternative is if I don't do that, those enemies are coming. They're going to try to exercise their authority over me and they're going to try to lord it over me. And that was a kingdom. A kingdom was, on one hand, uh, the people giving loyalty to the king, bowing their life before him and, and deciding to follow him and obey all his commands. That was the people's side. On the king's side, his duty, his responsibility was to protect the people and provide a kingdom of peace. And to the extent that, that this relationship existed, that was the kingdom. So for Saul, it involved all those in Israel who followed him, but not the Ammonites who were against him. And so he then had a kingdom. Um, Of course, it didn't last very long for Saul because he was actually a very lousy king. And uh, he showed himself to be unfaithful. And God took the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to David. But even that did not happen instantly, did it? 
It took time. And slowly what happened is people began to pull their allegiance away from Saul, and they started to give their allegiance to David. And it took a number of years, actually, for David to build up his forces and to prove himself and to show himself to be the new deliverer of Israel. And eventually Saul dies, and they anoint David as king. But again, there was a a long period of time between his anointing and his enthronement. And for David, it took not just one battle, but many, many, many battles to prove that he could be Israel's rescuer and deliverer and thus earn the right to be king. So what is a kingdom? A kingdom is simply the range of one person's effective and sovereign rule. And so for David, it was the effect of his, the range of his effective rule over those people, those who would follow him and those who he would protect. Uh, the, the, the kingdom shifted from God to Saul as the people removed their allegiance from God and gave it to Saul. It shifted from Saul to David as their allegiance shifted from Saul to David. Right. So what's this all got to do with Jesus and the kingdom, seeking the kingdom. Well, this is the deal. God created the world, created all things as his kingdom. He was to be Lord and master and ruler over everything. And at the center of his creation, he created beings who were in his image, over whom he would also rule. But the design of creation was this, that not only would God rule over the world, but he would actually rule through those creatures he made in his image. And so when we look in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed Adam and Eve and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, right? Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the animals and everything that screws on the ground. And so God is king, but he's king who's appointed us vice regents over his kingdom to rule uh, for him and with him. But, of course, that was all lost because those beings created in God's image turned out to be very unfaithful and disloyal, disloyal subjects. They rejected God as their king, uh, and they were not content or satisfied to simply rule with God. They chose to rule in God's stead in his place. And they said, you know, we can be like God. We don't need a God to rule over us. We want to be king outright. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that's exactly what they did. They asserted their independence from God and asserted their claim to rule over their own life. And because of God's plan and design, he willingly allowed us to rebel against him. Now, God could have squelched the rebellion right then and there. He could have squelched it any time he wanted. But he has chosen to allow us to usurp power and live in rebellion against him. And so on that day, God lost his kingdom. But sadly, man did not gain a kingdom. We thought we could rule over ourselves. What we didn't understand is when we we, uh, turned our loyalty away from God and chose not to obey his commands, we instead chose to follow uh, the commands of Satan and come under the grip of sin and death. And so we live with the illusion that we rule ourselves, but actually we are all captive, held in Satan's kingdom, who rules when we give our allegiance to sin and to disobedience. 
um, Jesus came preaching. He says he said he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came to win back God's rule over the hearts and lives of men like you and I. How did he do that? Well, God still is in a mode where he is not uh, forcing us to follow him. He is very much seeking to win our hearts and our allegiance, and he did it how? Well, he did it ultimately through the cross. Uh, Jesus came as king, and when he was born, he was anointed uh, as king of kings. But like Saul and like David, Jesus had to prove himself deliverer first. And he did that by teaching the kingdom for all the years of his life. But at the end, he did it through the cross. Right? On the cross, Jesus uh, fought and won back the kingdom for God. Now, there's, you know, there's nobody who would say that looked like victory. Right? Jesus died. The Romans crushed him. The Jewish enemies who hated him got their way. And Jesus laid down his life and he died a horrible death. How could that be victory? But of course, we know it's victory because the war that had to be fought was one of uh, sin's grip and power over us and the consequences of sin, which was death. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin and broke its power over us so that now... Through the work of Christ on the cross, we have the freedom to choose a new Lord and King and Master. We now are able through Christ to receive forgiveness and atonement and cleansing. And the power of sin is broken, Paul says in Romans chapter 6. And we are free to choose a new king over our life. That is the kingdom of redemption or the reign or rule of redemption that Christ brings to us. Uh, that is the purpose and mission of Christ. He came as a redeeming deliverer who conquered sin and death for us so that we could now uh, once again bow our life before God and claim him as our king and deliverer. Um, Jesus was anointed as king at his birth, but he really was enthroned as king, as rescuer and deliverer on the cross. Right? And that's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the kingdom that God brings to us. It is no longer a kingdom where God is, at this point anyway, dominating us by his power. Instead, he is drawing us to himself by his grace. And he is inviting all who understand his grace and who give what Jesus did for them to bring salvation, to redeem, to deliver and rescue them. He's saying, I've done this so that I can be your king. Because I want people who will willingly choose to devote to me their loyalty, to subject their lives to me. Um, and that's the context of what Jesus says here when he says, Seek the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. It means simply that we recognize that our, uh, our great enemy is sin and death and ultimately Satan. And that Jesus triumphed over all of those things through the cross. And he's earned the right to be our rescuer and our deliverer. And it's not just that now, you know, God saved me, Jesus, you know, paid for my sin. So now I can go on living as my own king without so much guilt. Right? And I can live my own life now and do my own thing without having to feel feeling guilty about it because it's covered by grace. 
That's not really the gospel. Uh, It's a piece of the gospel that, yes, Jesus paid for our sin. But it misses the point of what the gospel of the kingdom is about. He did all that to restore the kingdom to us. The rule and reign and lordship of God and the lordship of Christ over our lives. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, it means that we make him lord and master over our life. Um, That we pursue his rule and reign over us. Um, That we bow our life before him as king and as master. Um, A couple things about seeking the kingdom. If we are to seek the kingdom... First and foremost, it means seeking the king. And sadly, in today's world, there's this sense that the kingdom of God is somehow about justice and happiness and, and you know, a new world order where, where people are treated fairly and there's deliverance and, and uh, you know, that, that's, that's some of the fruit of the kingdom. But you cannot have that without the king. And sadly, today, a lot of people, religious people, Christian people, want the kingdom of God, but they don't want the God of the kingdom. Right? They want a God to come and fix things so they can live their selfish lives on their own uh, with more peace and with the good things of the kingdom, but they do not want to bow before the king. It's impossible. It's impossible. The definition of kingdom is the rule of the king. The only way you can enter into the kingdom is that you bow your life before this king and you seek him. You seek to know him. You seek to know his heart. You seek to love and worship and adore and follow him. Seeking the kingdom is seeking God, is seeking Christ. Secondly, it is recognizing his right to rule over our life. Absolutely, seeking the kingdom is to live our life uh, with our, our will, our rights, our goals and our plans surrendered to him. You cannot live in God's kingdom and rule your own life. Right? You cannot make God king and still try to be king yourself. Uh, to seek God's kingdom is to lay down your life and say, God, I bow before you. And I, I like that we kneel sometimes when we pray. Um, we know, you know from, the, from Thailand, uh, when you come into the presence of the king of Thailand, you come bowed. Right? You don't come standing upright and straight. Like back in the old days, that was a great way to just lose your head, right? Um, you would bow to show your subservience, to show that you are a subject of the king, that you are yielding your life to his will and control and power. You cannot seek God's kingdom if you are not willing to lay down your whole will, your whole life, and say, God, you must now rule over my life. You are my king. Of course, the benefits and blessing that come with that is that we also receive the benefit of his deliverance, right? It's the exchange we make. We give him our life. We make him Lord. We receive the blessing of his kingdom, the peace that he gave us through the cross. So that's what it means to pursue the kingdom. Uh, Jesus goes on from there, though, when he talks about um, what is the currency of the kingdom, He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. 
If we are to be residents and members of the kingdom, uh, we not only rule under him, but Jesus makes it clear that we rule with him. Um, that we have responsibilities and duties in the kingdom. Right? That we have tasks. That God uh, wants us to rule with him. I don't know if you notice in the song we sing, I remember which one, but there's this great line this morning, that we rule with Christ. Amazing thing. Uh, what does that look like? Well, Jesus says it looks like this. It looks like selling everything and giving to the poor. Uh, does that kind of freak you out? Most people hear that and see that. They're like, you start, you start going through the whole checklist of what this could and could not mean. Like, does this mean sell everything? Like, what can I keep? What am I supposed to sell? Okay, does this make you panic? Right? It does. It should. I mean, we, sh- we should think about this, right? Jesus says, you want to live in the kingdom. You want to be ruling with me. You want to be surrendering your life to the king. The king's ordering you to sell your stuff and give it away. Ah, do I still want him to be king? Ah, right? And he just got done saying, fear not, because God wants to give you the kingdom. Right? He wants to take care of you. So the, the reality is that now you have a new freedom to just give stuff away. Because you have the assurance and guarantee of God's provision and care over your life. Do you believe that? Well, the test of your belief is how willingly you are to part with your stuff. Reality. Reality. Sell your stuff and give to the poor. What is Jesus talking about here? What's the the principle here? Um, He's really talking about in God's kingdom... We operate with a different kind of currency. You see, the, what, what is the currency of this world? Well, the currency of this world is money. Right? Because the goal, is, as Maslow points out, the goal of life is self. And that doesn't really come from Maslow. He didn't invent it. It actually comes from Satan. It's the core value of Satan's kingdom. Satan loves anything you do as long as you do it for yourself. He's all about that, right? He's happy for you to indulge yourself and gratify yourself and live for yourself. Because the more you do that, the more he owns you. Right? The more he owns you. The more you pursue self-rule and self-respect and self-gratification and self-interest, the more you live for your own selfish pursuits and your own comfort and your own security, the more Satan owns you. So he's happy for you to live for yourself. And it is, it is the core value of this world. Uh, what buys that? Well, money buys that, honestly. Uh, and, and that's why the world lives for wealth. The more money, the more resources, the more possessions you have, the more likely you can get what you want. Isn't that true? Um, I saw Jay Leno, super wealthy. Uh, you know, he, His car collection, his auto collection, has something like 250 automobiles and motorcycles. 250. Right? That means if he drove one every day, it would take him almost a year to drive just one a day. Right? Ridiculous, right? But, but he's got the money, and so he can get whatever he wants. That's the currency of this world. What Jesus is saying here is, is that money is not the currency of the kingdom. You need to exchange your currency for the currency of the kingdom, and the currency of the kingdom is compassion. You sell, your, sell your possessions and do what? Well, literally, it says give alms. Okay, give alms was the practice of, of showing mercy to those who were poor and in need by, by giving them money. Okay. Uh, Jesus says the, compassion doesn't, the, the kingdom operates on the currency of compassion. Um, 
the way we gain the kingdom is by giving compassion to those in need. Uh, if, if the kingdom means doing God's will, it means doing what God does. And what does God do? The scripture says that Jesus, though he was rich, he became what? Poor for our sakes, so that we might become rich. That's what God does. That's what our king does. So if we want to do his will, we would be like him. Uh, we do what he does. And why did God do that? Because he loved us. Because of his, uh, because of his unending, undying compassion and heart for us. He gave. He cashed in his assets. And by the way, for God, the only, thing, the only asset he had, the only thing of eternal worth to him was his son. But he can make mountains of gold and make more mountains of gold. What cost God something was his son. Right? And he was willing to pay that price out of his great love for you and I. So if we are to be part of the kingdom, we must be people who, who barter in the currency of compassion, whose lives are pursuing living out God's love and mercy to the world around us. Um, And we do that by selling what we have or by sharing what we have or by, what, by using what we have for his kingdom. Is Jesus saying you need to sell everything you own? No. But what he's saying is this. You've got a lot of stuff. You can use it for yourself, which is the world's way, or you can cash it in and find ways to use it to show compassion to the world around you. That's the point. Another way to look at this is to ask yourself, is my stuff a tool or a treasure? Uh, God gives us tools, but we use tools to benefit and to do things. And we have the opportunity to use those tools to benefit others. Okay, should you sell your car? Well, I wouldn't recommend it because, you know, it's going to limit the circle of people you can help, right? If you have a car, you can help people in a, in a larger range of distance, right? It's a tool, don't be Jay Leno. Don't collect 250 of them. <laughs> okay, then it becomes a treasure that's pointless, that has no effect in benefiting others. See, here's the deal. Uh, what is, the, is compassion the driving force of your life? Jesus says this, So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves... Uh, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure in heaven that does not fail. We have the privilege right now, as we live on this earth, the privilege and the opportunity of purchasing and investing in eternity, of storing up for ourselves eternal treasures. Now, this is cool stuff, Right? And this is where the world falls short. The world lives for today. The farthest they can see is the grave. And they have no sense of what happens beyond the grave. So they store up all their treasures. They live all their life simply for what fits within the, the boundaries of birth and death. But Jesus says, you are part of an eternal kingdom. And you are eternal residents of it. And there's a whole lot more life and living beyond the grave. Right? A whole lot more. 70, 80 years compared to eternity. You know, how, do you, how do you draw a graph for that, Tom? You've got to help me draw a graph for like zero to eternity. Right? 
How do you measure that? How do you compare that? Well, you can't, right? You can't. Um, Jesus says you have the opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. How do you do that? I think there's three ways. First of all, you do what God does. Right? Uh, God loves and cares for the poor and the orphan and the oppressed. Anytime you do anything that is exercising the heart of God, regardless of its long-term spiritual impacts, just that activity purchases for you eternal treasure. Right? So if you see somebody in need and you give them a thousand baht or fifty baht or whatever, you know, you give them a loaf of bread, you help them, you show the heart of God to them. Doesn't matter if they get saved or don't get saved or how if they're even thankful. Right? That act of giving, of exercising God's heart and kindness, stores up for you eternal treasure. And and the great thing is the more it costs you, the more of a sacrifice it is to you personally, the more treasure it gains you in heaven. It's just a spiritual principle of the kingdom. Uh, you don't know how to do that? I can give you tons of suggestions. Right? One of them that I love is uh, we have a scholarship fund that we send poor kids all over Thailand to school. For a thousand baht a month, that's like, you know, a couple trips to McDonald's. A thousand baht a month, you could support a kid and you store up treasure in heaven. Just a quick little commercial there. <laughs> second thing, second thing. Uh, anytime you invest in people, people are eternal. Okay, whatever you do to impact the life of another person and move them uh, into the kingdom or to, to grow them in the kingdom has eternal benefit. Right? I know a lot of you are investing in people, and it's going to be an amazing thing one day. We're going to get to heaven. We're going to have all eternity before us. And we're going to see the lives of people that we have been used by God to touch and impact in some way. People who are in the kingdom because we shared the gospel with them. People who were successful and actually had their own treasure in the kingdom because we discipled and mentored them. Because we helped them in their marriage and helped them with their children and helped them serve God more effectively. And that's going to be part of our treasure. And for eternity, they're going to be thankful to God, but they're going to be thankful to you that you took the time and made sacrifices to love them and to help them and to care for them. Thirdly, uh, anything that we do to invest in the kingdom. Right? So however we are uh, giving and supporting and praying for those who do kingdom work and who spread the gospel and who are uh, committed to, we prayed this morning for translating Bibles and for taking the gospel to the ends of the world. The more that we support and, and are behind that, we're storing up eternal treasures. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? And here's the principle. Jesus is trying to say, he's not saying you have to sell everything. Okay? And to read it that way is to kind of miss the whole point. What he's saying is this. He's saying, I'm telling you, right now you get the opportunity to exchange your stuff that's not going to last very long anyway and cash it in for eternal gain. That's what he's saying. How many want to do that? I want to do that, right? I want to cash in as much as possible. I want to use whatever God has blessed with as much as possible to gain eternal treasure. There's a scene from the movie Schindler's List, and maybe if you've seen the movie, you'll remember this scene. Uh, it's at the end of the movie when uh, the, the Germans have been defeated and, and Schindler was successful in, raising, in, in saving hundreds of, of Jews uh, from death. 
but he realizes that he, he uh, could have done more, and he has some regret over that. And the scene goes like this. Schindler says, I could have gotten more out. I could have gotten more. I don't know. I, if, I, if I just, I could have gotten more. And Itzhak Stern, who is his kind of advisor, says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. Schindler, if, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I just, Stern interrupts, there will be generations because of what you did. Schindler, I didn't do enough. Stern, you did so much. Schindler looks at his car. This car, Goth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. Removing a Nazi pin from his lapel, Schindler continues. This pin, two people, this gold, two more people. He would have given me two for it. Well, at least one. One more person, a person, Stern, for this. And he breaks down sobbing. I'm not going to sob. I'm not that good of an actor. Schindler, I could have gotten one more person and I didn't. I didn't, right? Powerful scene in the movie. Historians tell us that Schindler never said that, (laughs) sadly. Uh, And he had no regrets because he helped a lot of people and he felt good about what he did, right? But uh, I I wanted to share that because it illustrates a great point, and the point is this. Uh, In the movie, Schindler realized that there was a point in time when it was too late, right? The opportunities he had had to sell his car, his gold pen, or to make more money and invest it in saving Jews, the time was over and it was too late. And at that point, everything he had left was of no value to him. It was too late to sell and cash in for the lives of those people. So that's what Jesus is saying here. There will come a time when it will be too late for you. You will have died, you will be in heaven and it will be too late to sell what you have and to have exchanged it for the currency of compassion. Now is the time when we can take all that God has given and use it for his kingdom glory. Um, don't waste it. Right? Jesus is warning you. Don't get to the end of your life and realize it was too late. And like Schindler in the movie, be filled with regret because... At the end of your life, you have too much stuff that is worthless and too little to show for it in terms of God's kingdom work and glory. I know a lot of you are investing your lives in the kingdom. And Jesus says, where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. If you are living for the kingdom, celebrate that. And know that your heart is being pulled ever increasingly towards eternity. Right? But if honestly you would say, you know, my heart is not there, there's only one cure for that, and that is to start selling your stuff and start bartering in the currency of compassion. Start investing in what's eternal. Right? Your heart will follow your treasure. Let's pray. Lord God, we do just thank you for your kingdom. And most of all, we thank you for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has earned the right to be king, not because he's sovereign creator over everything, which he is, but even more so because he died and fought the battle all alone to purchase our redemption, to save us from Satan and from the grip of sin and death. 
Lord Jesus, we worship you as our King. And we recognize that uh, you alone are worthy of our devotion and our loyalty. Lord, may you be King over our life. May you reign as Lord over all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.